Welcome to the Masters in Psychology podcast, where psychology students can learn from psychologists, educators, and practitioners to better understand what they do, how they got there, and to hear the advice they have for those interested in getting a graduate degree in psychology. I'm your host, Brad Schumacher, and today we welcome Dr. Hannah Schachter to the show. Dr. Schachter is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at Wayne State University and adjunct assistant professor in the Merrill Palmer Skillman Institute for Child and Family Development. She is also the director of the Adolescent Relationships and Context Lab. Today we will learn more about her academic and professional journey, more about her professorships at WSU, and discuss the ARC Lab. Dr. Schachter, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I appreciate you getting on um, and talking about your journey. I, I, the fun part for me, as I was telling you before we started, is I get to learn more about your academic and professional journey. And so our goal is to go through that first and then talk about how you ended up at WSU, a day in the life of, of you and your job, and then talk a little bit more about the lab and then obviously provide some advice to, for any students who are interested and aspiring to stay in the academic field in psychology. So I noticed that you received your bachelor's degree in psychology from Hamilton College in Clinton, New York. Tell me a little bit more about your undergraduate experiences and what exactly ignited your interest in psychology. Yeah, I'd be happy to share more. So I went to uh, Hamilton College, for those that don't know, and many may not, it is a very small liberal arts school in upstate New York. Uh, so it's about 1,800 students total, which was actually even smaller than my high school was. Um, so very different environment than somewhere like I am now as a professor. Um, it's a big public research intensive university. Um, when I came to Hamilton, I already knew I wanted to be a psychology major. Um, part of that was I, I grew up in a family of um, both parents being psychologists, so I was exposed to the field pretty early on. I, at a fairly young age, just became really interested in the idea of um, data and uh, learning about other people and uh, kind of evaluating patterns. So I remember being in fifth grade and taking surveys of things like people's favorite ice cream flavor in my class and, you know, tallying up the totals and ranking. And so I think that that very early on um, was an interest of mine. And then as I got a little bit older, I also developed an interest in working with children. So I worked at summer camps um, and, and babysat a bunch. And it really wasn't until I got to college and felt like I had the opportunity through a psychology major to sort of merge those interests when I got really interested in child development and developmental psychology. So um, at, at Hamilton, initially, I was just taking psychology classes kind of in the typical way that a psych major would. Um, and then it's it was one of these funny uh, you look back and you realize so much was shaped by a, what felt like at the time kind of a disaster scenario, but I had signed up for an econ class my first semester of college. Um, I think because my roommate had, I didn't really have that much interest in economics, but I took the course, I got through my first exam and I completely bombed it. I did so horribly and it was looking like if I continued in this class, it was already my first semester of college going to tank my GPA. I went to my academic advisor who was in the psychology department and I said, I don't know what to do. And she basically told me if I wanted to drop the class, it wasn't too late, but I would have to make up the credits and I could do so through these semesterly uh, research credits, which over time would accumulate to be um, enough to make up the class. So I started getting involved in research and it was sort of like the rest was history after that. <laughs> 
Well, I did notice that. And we'll talk a little bit more about some of your experiences leading up to, you know, college and even through graduate school. Uh, you know, one thing I noticed is you were in New York, and then all of a sudden, out of the blue, you decided, hey, I want to travel all the way across the United States and go to California. There are so many different schools in California that offer graduate degrees in psychology. So tell me your thought process about, well, how did you decide to go to UCLA for your graduate degree? Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting process, right? Because it's in some ways you have so many options, but then at the same time, when you're looking for PhD programs and you're really trying to fit your specific research interests, not only with the school, but a specific department and then a specific program and then within that a specific research mentor. So for me, um, the decision was really guided by um, who I would potentially be working with. So when I was applying to graduate schools, um, I was I was not I was almost taking a bottom up approach rather than looking at, OK, let me look at all the universities and then see who's in those departments. I was looking at who's doing research, regardless of where they are, that fits with what I want to do as a graduate student and eventually, you know, down the road in my career. And then, you know, from there, OK, what what is the department like? What is the university like? What are the opportunities? So um, I in college, the the research that I got involved in with my my um, Advise, my academic advisor, uh, focused a lot on children's social relationships and specifically aggression in kids' relationships. So looking at things like rumor spreading and gossip and exclusion and um, how, how frequently that takes place, how it develops over time, how it might affect children's uh, mental health. And so going into P applying to PhD programs, I knew that was a line of research I really wanted to continue. And I also was particularly interested in adolescence as a developmental period, given what we know about how important peer relationships become during those teenage years. And um, so, so when I was trying to identify potential research mentors, uh, Dr. Yana Yuvenin, who ultimately was my advisor at UCLA, was someone that was really a, a leader in that, in that area. Um, I was really interested in and excited by the research she was doing. Um, and so that, that was right at the top of my list when I started applying to schools, given what I felt like was a really strong match in, in research interests. Well, it sounds like you were looking for people who could advise in the same area that you were interested in. I was just looking at your LinkedIn profile. And when you go to your experiences, anything from all the way from 2005, you, you were looking at and working at the Harris uh, Early Childhood Lab as a volunteer researcher. Then you went into the uh, as a volunteer researcher in Kensinger Cognitive and Affective Neuroscience Lab at Boston College research intern at uh, Boston Healthcare System. And then when I continue looking at your interests, everything was in that child development, adolescent development area. So it's no wonder you kind of found yourself in that branch of psychology, of developmental branch of psychology. So can you, you said that you, when you were going for uh, your graduate and you applied directly to the PhD program. So a lot of our guests ask, well, how did you decide if you were going to go the PhD route versus a PsyD route? Can you speak to that for a moment? Yeah, I, I encounter a lot of students with that same question. Um, I think a lot of it comes down to ultimately, what are you hoping to do with your degree and the, the extent to which you're interested in more clinical work versus research 
um, and or teaching. So for me, I, I did go through a phase at some point, maybe as a, an under, early an undergraduate where I thought, you know, I want to be a therapist or I want to be a mental health counselor. Um, and as I got more and more involved with research, I realized that that's really where my passion and excitement was. Um, and so a PhD program was a really good fit for me because it provides intensive training in um, psychological research. Uh, and I had some opportunities to also uh, teach as a teaching assistant and independently. And that prepared me really well for sort of this academic path, becoming a faculty member where I'd have my own lab, be leading my own research, teaching. Uh, whereas something like a PsyD uh, offers a lot of opportunities for getting that hands-on clinical experience, clinical training, you know, working with patients um, that would prepare someone really well going into different healthcare settings or maybe establishing a private practice, things like that. So I think it it really comes down to where where someone's interests lie in terms of long term. Um, and I think you know either program has its own. Um, benefits and drawbacks and uh, things that you have to kind of sacrifice for one versus the other, but it really comes down to, yeah, what, what you envision for your long-term career goals. Think back when you actually applied for graduate schools. Do you remember how many you applied to and, and did it really come down to that mentor and that program that made you decide on UCLA? Speak to that for a second. It did. I, I ended up applying to, I want to say it was around seven or eight programs Mm -hmm. uh, and I was very fortunate that I was accepted to most programs I had applied to. So I felt like I had options. Um, at the end of the day, again, it's like you're sometimes weighing these different costs and benefits. And UCLA and working with, with my advisor there was sort of the one place where I really didn't see costs, maybe aside from literally the cost of living in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. I didn't see, you know, there were just, there was so, you know, it's a fantastic school. Um, I saw really amazing opportunities in, in the lab that I joined. Um, I was, you know, 21 years old and excited about the idea of living in California. Like, when was I going to do that again? Um, and so, so it ended up just for me feeling like that there was, there was so much to offer. Um, there were certainly other places I, I applied and was accepted where I, I think so much of a PhD is really what you make of it. And so, um, although I don't regret anything about my experience, I, I do think there, there are other places I could have ended up and I probably would have had a fantastic experience also. Um, so I think it's less about, you know, making the right choice and more about making a choice that feels like a strong fit. Um, and, and, you know, other people sometimes are balancing other personal needs where, you can't just pick up and move to California. Um, and so I think there's a lot to consider there too. Um, although I would say when choosing initially where to apply that research fit, the fit with the mentor, not just even research-wise, but also interpersonally, is this someone you want to work closely with for you know five, six years? That's that's an important factor as well. Do you get along? Do you feel like they're going to be a supportive mentor? That's a good point. And the other thing that comes uh to my mind while you were describing that, you know, you're 20, 21 years old, having to move from one East Coast to the West Coast was that it sounded like you were exciting, you know, excited for that. But some people might not want to do that because they're so far away from, uh, you know, their parents and their friends and, and their home, basically. So do you recall your feeling when you were uh, deciding whether or not I should go to UCLA or other ones. And I think you already mentioned how exciting it would be to live in California. 
Yeah, I, I I think there was probably a little bit of apprehension in terms of going somewhere totally new. I really didn't know anyone over there. My family is all on the East Coast. It's not like I had friends out there. Um, in some ways, I think because I went straight from undergrad, it, it perhaps made it a little bit easier because I had just finished college. And so I knew I was already parting ways with all of my close friends from college in terms of we all lived in different places already. Um, and, you know, I did have some friends back in, I grew up in the Boston area, so I did have some friends who I knew were going back there, but it kind of felt like regardless of what I did, it was a bit of a fresh start. So why not, you know, do that somewhere at Sunny all year? <laughs> uh, it, it felt less daunting knowing that I was going to have to make a big academic and social transition, no matter what I did. Um, and so I think that that made it a little bit easier. And I also felt like starting graduate school, because you're in a cohort of, of classmates who are in the same boat as you, they're all starting sure. a new program as well. You almost have this built-in social network that now being, I, I would say my move uh, from California to Michigan was probably more daunting for me because as an adult, I think it's a, almost more challenging. I mean, not that I wasn't an adult at 21, but you know, you, you, it's uh, a lot of people are kind of still finding themselves and you're put into the situation with a lot of people who um, are, you're kind of commiserating over the stresses of grad school, you're um, experiencing a new city together. So, you know, very few people that I was close with in graduate school were from Los Angeles. And so I think we all, we all really bonded because of that. Well, it sounds like, and you brought up a good point. You do have those colleagues, cohorts that are in that program with you in the same boat, and you actually help each other get through the program, support uh, socially as well as academically. So, you know, here's one one question that I have is, what advice would you give to aspiring psychology students who are just starting their academic journey? Any advice for them? It could be daunting to them. Hey, how do I decide which branch? How do I decide which school? Any general advice for those psychology students who are just starting their academic career in, in psychology? Yeah, I think a lot of it is um, experimenting and trying different things. Um, I think there sometimes is this feeling of there's so much pressure to figure out exactly what you want to do really early on. Um, but I think it's okay. If anything, it's it's useful to have experiences that aren't great or that you realize I really don't like that or I'm not interested in that. So I see it as almost a win-win for students as they start exploring. Maybe they want to get involved in a research lab as an undergraduate um, and they're not sure which lab should I join. I'm not sure what I'm interested in. And the way I see it is either you join one that ends up being a really great fit and you find the research interesting and it's it's an area maybe you want to continue in or you join one and you realize, wow, I really don't like this, you know, area of research or inquiry. I don't want to do this, but that's an important lesson because it helps you narrow down. Okay, that's out. Maybe I'll try this. So I think um, really thinking of everything as a learning experience and not not necessarily a mistake if you if you do something and you realize you don't like it. Um, but I do think the more you can get involved, um, and we can talk more about what that might look like, but the more you can get involved in actual ongoing research to determine, is that a path you like? Or perhaps things like if you think you might want to go more clinical, you're interested in mental health and maybe counseling or therapy, you know, doing something like an internship in a in a um, some sort of mental health setting um, can be useful. But the more that you can get your feet wet, um, I think that's really when you immerse yourself, you get the best understanding of, is this something I could see myself doing long-term? 
I like how you summarize that. Don't view it as mistakes or correct choices, just experiences. And not only, you know, the research areas, but just going and being involved in lab and, and being able to do some research that would help you understand, do I like doing research? And if you don't, then, then you found something out and that helps you redirect your path a little bit. So I like that summary. Um, were there any other experiences that come to mind or opportunities that undergrads can actually take uh, advantage of to help them decide, hey, is graduate school right, you know, right for me? Um, you already mentioned one, lab, research, doing any uh, uh, analytical stuff, any uh, research in that area or, or labs. Anything else that comes to mind for people deciding whether or not I should stay within the academic field or I should go the clinical or go outside of the academic field? Um, I guess th this is related to research labs, but it's a slightly different avenue of getting that experience. Um, one thing that I personally encountered as an undergraduate was because I was at a very small undergraduate only institution that had research going on, but not a lot and not at the same level or breadth as somewhere like UCLA or Wayne State, um, is that I didn't really have any exposure. I was getting, you know, into around my third year of undergrad and I realized I haven't really seen what it's like um, in a research intensive academic environment. You know, I haven't really interacted much with graduate students. I had a little bit of that when I kind of volunteered locally as a high school student. Um, but there are opportunities out there, oftentimes funded uh, through institutions like National Science F Foundation, where undergraduates can apply for summer research opportunities. And these are often not at their own institution and are frequently really geared towards students that may not have access or direct easy access to those kinds of research experiences at their own schools. So one of these um, through National Science Foundation is called the, the REU program, Research Experience for Undergraduates. And that's something I ended up doing after my the summer after my junior year of college. Uh, and that was at Yale University. So as part of that, it was um, a multi-week program where you go, you're living. I lived in, you know, in New Haven and every day you're spending time uh, basically interning in um, a couple of different research labs. And so that was an amazing experience in terms of seeing what it's like at a more research intensive uh, university. I was mentored by a graduate student there. Uh, there was professional development involved where all of us were you know, studying for the GRE together and working on our application statements for graduate school. So um, I think really taking advantage of applying for opportunities like that. I recommend if people aren't already on Twitter, I feel like I see so many uh, advertisements for programs like this more and more that um, I know I'm always trying to retweet them to get them out to undergrads who might be interested. But I think that that kind of opportunity, just again, getting that immersive experience, if, especially if it's not as um, readily available at your, your home institution. Yeah. And you were mentioning your NSF uh, research experience for undergraduate or REU uh, program. You did that at Yale, as you said, and you were a research assistant in the Olson Social Cognitive Development Lab and the Santos Comparative Cognition Lab at Yale University, and that lasted a little over three months. So uh, from there, you, you have a variety of experiences as well. And then I'm going to kind of jump toward uh, the end. Uh, you actually uh, did an, you were an NSF postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Southern California in the Department of Psychology. So tell us how you found this 
fellowship and how one might increase their chances of finding uh, an opportunity like this. I mean, back when I was going through school, we didn't have as much of the social media. You had to, you know, it's who you knew uh, going to conferences, local, regional, national conferences and making contacts and letting them know, hey, I am interested in this area. Do you have any opportunities? So tell us how you found this NSF postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Southern California in that department of psychology. Yeah, so this is a, a unique kind of fellowship because it's it's actually not specifically affiliated with US with University of Southern California. It's a uh, fellowship provided by National Science Foundation that you can apply for um, and you choose where you would want to be and who you would hypothetically be working with, which is what the appeal was for me um, because I was able to specifically hone in on this is a a uh, researcher who is doing exciting work that I think if I had the opportunity to train with, it would really expand my research rep repertoire and you can choose where you want that to be. So it gives you almost a, if you get it, a level of control over where you're going to um, do your postdoc. And for those that aren't, aren't as familiar with what a postdoc is and involves, um, it's typically a, you know, it could be anything from one year to multi-year uh, opportunity after training experience, after you get your PhD, but before you would go into something like a faculty position or whatever your, your next steps are, maybe outside of academia. Um, but it's an opportunity to continue publishing your work, to get new training in a, maybe a slightly different but complementary research area, learn new methods. Um, and so when I was in my fifth year of graduate school and I was planning to finish that year, I was applying to academic jobs, but also recognize the, you know, the, the competition of that and wanted to also give, you know, myself the op potential opportunity to, to do something like a postdoc fellowship. Um, I think one of the challenges of a postdoc is that it typically is just a couple years and it's a sort of limbo period. And so in some ways, depending on your life stage and your personal life, it can be really hard to think about the idea of, am I going to relocate again for maybe two years and then pick up and do it again when I eventually get a faculty position? So um, for me, it was, I felt really fortunate to find Dr. Gayla Margolin, who was my my mentor for, for that experience, right in LA where I already was. So So that was another appeal of being able to apply for that was proposing to continue my training at a different institution with a different mentor, but not necessarily having to uproot my my life um, for a very short period of time. Well, it sounds like you were fortunate because you were still uh, in the same area. You didn't have to move for that. But the reason I was asking that question is a lot of uh, listeners don't realize the postdoc fellowship um, you know, process or procedure. And back in the day, you know, from talking to a lot of my guests is, you know, early on, it was almost expected after you finished your PhD, you just automatically apply for faculty positions if you wanted to stay in the academic world and, and, and in, the, in the academic field, I should say. Uh, nowadays, more and more faculty positions are almost requiring or suggesting that you have that postdoc experience. What has what have what have you kind of learned going through that experience? Is that uh, still the case or tell me your thoughts on that? Yes, I would say it has become increasingly common, and I would also probably say it's more common than not to have postdoc experience before entering a faculty position. Mm -hmm. um, 
it wasn't something I initially was set on my head in my head of, I want to do a postdoc in, in retrospect though, I'm very glad that I did. Um, the other thing I'll mention is that there are to, to what you were saying before about sort of the networking aspect of, of a postdoc, there are definitely different avenues for getting a postdoc. One is what I talked about, which is you apply for some sort of external fellowship and you propose a research plan, a mentoring plan, who you're going to work with and where. There are also advertised postdocs in the same way that a faculty position might be advertised. So you might see it on, you know, on a job website. So-and-so is hiring a postdoctoral fellow for two years at this institution to work on XYZ projects. And then sometimes you, you do still see that networking aspect where maybe a student, a graduate student is at a conference, they mention that they're finishing up their dissertation and someone, um, you know, an established faculty member says, oh, I'm going to be looking for a postdoc next year. You should, you know, you should consider working with me. So um, there's different ways of getting there um, and different ways that the postdoc itself plays out in terms of are you teaching at all? Or are you just doing research? Things like that. You know, that's a good, very good overview. Uh, and now you already mentioned this, you went from New York, California, and then you went right in the middle, you went to uh, Detroit, Michigan, and, and now you're at Wayne State University, and you've been there since 2019. How did you end up at WSU? And did you apply to other faculty positions? And same kind of questions? Why did you end up going to WSU? Yeah. Yes, I certainly applied to other positions. Um, I was advised you need to cast a very wide net. Um, you know, you want to obviously consider where would I actually move and, and consider living. Um, and, and Wayne State was definitely um, on that list. But I did, I applied widely. The thing that I really, I mean, there's a number of things that I, I was really excited about at Wayne State. Some of the, um, the ones that really stand out to me is one, um, Wayne State is, it's a large public research intensive university, and it really has a strong urban mission with a great emphasis on community engagement um, and a, a real mass of researchers who are interested in connecting um, psychology and health, uh, which is really where I saw my research heading. You know, I study adolescent development, but I'm, I'm particularly interested in how adolescents' social relationships, their peer relationships connect uh, to both their mental and physical health. And so I saw a lot of opportunities for uh, potential collaboration and really felt like the kind of work I was doing would be would be valued there. Um, and again, appreciated the, you know, just in terms of geographic location, the, the cultural richness and diversity of being somewhere like Detroit. Um, and for me in my personal life, being closer to family was certainly a, a draw. Um, it was, it was despite the things I loved about California, it was tough being all the way across the country for that many years. So, um, so I, I really uh, felt a connection to the university's mission, to the work that was being done there, collaborative opportunities, and then personally thought that it was, you know, geographically a good fit for me as well. Well, it sounds like it. And I did see in here that you might be reviewing graduate applications and you might be accepting a graduate student for the fall of 2023. So here's a minute or two to talk about that. And if anybody is listening or watching this podcast, maybe they'll learn something and maybe they'll apply. So tell us a little bit about that opportunity, if that's going to be still available in fall. 
Yes. So we review applications every year for graduate students. And so there'll be a new cycle um, this fall. Usually applications are due by uh, December 1st, and there's always more information on our psychology website. But um, yes, I will be reviewing applications. I am in our developmental science area. So, um, you know, there's different areas within the psychology department, and I'm specifically a faculty member within the developmental area. And so um, folks who are interested in specifically adolescent development, adolescent social development and health um, definitely feel free to learn more about our our research and the kind of work we're doing we have a lab website um, that uh, details more of our ongoing projects but um, when I you know when I review applicants because a lot of the time we you hear students ask like what are what are people looking for what do you and again it comes back to that fit so certainly you want to see that students have good grades and they've had research experience and they know kind of what they're getting into, but it's also finding that match between, you know, what are we doing in the lab? What is the kind of research we're interested in and what is a student's aspirations in terms of their research interests? So you mentioned the lab. So I mentioned earlier um, the um, adolescent, let's find it here. It's the adolescent relationships, relationships and context yeah. lab. So the ARC lab. So tell us a little bit more about the ARC lab, its mission, your goals, some of the recent research that you're looking at, uh, just to let people know. And, and uh, you know, one thing that I, I mentioned almost on all of my podcasts is, you know, if you want to, and we already mentioned it earlier, is if you want to, you know, gain some experience, find out if you do want to do research, get out and and volunteer or work with a lab that actually is doing ongoing research, and that will give you a lot of experience. So tell us a little bit more about here is the ARC lab. Yeah, so I established the lab when I started at Wayne State back in the fall of 2019. And our overarching arching goals, as kind of the name of the lab implies, is really to study adolescents' relationships and considering the broader context in which those relationships exist. So we know adolescents go to school, they live in families, you know, and understanding how those different social forces really interact to shape adolescents' um, relationships with others, particularly their peers, as well as their health. So um, one of one of our major areas of inquiry is understanding how both positive and negative peer experiences during adolescence um, can promote versus undermine adolescence health outcomes. So on the positive side, how can we think about friendships as being these assets to teens? When and why do they uh, serve really a, a mental health promoting function? And then on the flip side, when we think about negative experiences, what does it mean in terms of um, consequences for both mental and physical health for adolescents who can't make friends, who struggle with their peers, who get bullied, who are discriminated against. So that's really our, our main um, interest is kind of understanding if, when, and how peer relationships have an impact on adolescence development over time. So I did notice some of the, uh, um, uh, you know, on the website, you have some of the recent research. You also can find out what you're doing when you go to Google Scholar. Uh, one of your most recent ones, the power dynamics of friendship between and within person associations among friend, dominance, self-esteem, and adolescent internalizing systems. Can you think of recent research uh, finding or theory in psychology that you guys have been studying that's particularly fascinating or groundbreaking and explain its impact on the field? You know, think of uh, a recent research uh, study that you and your, your lab uh, has done. Share that with us real briefly. 
Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll actually talk about the one that you just mentioned because it's it's uh, come out really recently, and it's for me, it's kind of a a passion project that I've. It's something I've wanted to study for a really long time, and never really had the opportunity until we we decided to design our own study so we could actually evaluate it. And that's this idea that when we think about friendships in adolescence, a lot of the time that word conjures up very positive connotations. We think of friends as um, as offering many benefits for our uh, our mental well-being and um, even things like academic outcomes and physical health. And at the same time, we know that not all friendships by default are positive. There are certainly adolescents who have friendships that um, may not meet all of their needs or that they stay in for other reasons, whether it's they don't really have other options um, or, you know, wanting to be friends with kids who are popular, even if they aren't the best quality friends. And so um, in that study, we, we started to really think about the role of power in friendships. Um, there's been research looking at power in the context of things like romantic relationships um, or within sort of broad peer groups. What does, it, what does it mean to have power, be popular? But there really hasn't been anything looking at power within friendships. What does it mean to be a friend who always gets bossed around, told what to do? You never get to make the decisions in the friendship. Wouldn't that be very kind of autonomy limiting and um, take a toll on, on your, your well-being? And so that's something we investigated in this study was we, we carried out a multi-year project. It's actually still going on now. We started it when adolescents were in ninth grade and it was sort of in the the depth of the COVID pandemic so that's a whole nother element of it um, but we tracked over time every few months who were they friends with and how much did they consider those friends to engage in these kind of domineering behaviors that really limited their own independence or agency in the friendship and then look to see if that varied with um, their levels of anxiety and depressive symptoms and so we found this consistent uh, pattern where adolescents who felt like my friends, they they call the shots, they decide what we do. It's all they're kind of in charge. Those teens were experiencing greater feelings of anxiety and depression over the course of multiple years. So I think it really um, certainly does not is not to say that friendships are a bad thing. We we would never suggest that, but to really think about the nuances of friendship, and we have to be thinking not just if they exist, but also. Um, what what the specific features of those friendships are and, and how they might meet or undermine adolescence needs at that developmental period. And that is a, a significant period because you are trying to find yourself and figure out who you are. And you're doing that through these interactions, these friendships. And so uh, no, that's interesting. And then I wonder if you have looked at or will look at, um, you know, um, people who are outgoing versus those who are more um, inward and how they handle that type of relationship as well. So um, one of the things that I did notice is that you are also an adjunct assistant professor in the Merrill Palmer Skillman Institute for Child and Family Development. So tell us a little bit more about the uh, Institute. Yes, yeah, so this is an institute affiliated with Wayne State. Um, we actually just celebrated a hundred year anniversary. So MIPSI, I saw that. Merrill yep. Palmer, it's a long title, but MIPSI is what we call it. It was established okay. back in 1920, so really exciting. But um, it's essentially, as the, as the name kind of signifies, it's an institute focused on understanding um, child and family development, but it really hosts a broad range. There's, there's sort of a research focus, um, and there's also a huge community engagement um, and outreach component. So 
people in the Institute range from faculty in psychology to faculty in social work um, to the School of Medicine. So it's really this interdisciplinary community um, and doing work that serves families as well as kids all the way from infancy up through adolescence and early adulthood. Um, one of the roles, so as an affiliate of the, the Institute, one of the roles that um, I have right now that's that's really exciting and timely because it's coming up is that um, Merrill Palmer every year hosts something called the Giant Step for Teen Conference. And so this is a, a big event that invites uh, Detroit-based high school students to come together on this day. And it's essentially an opportunity to meet kids they've never met before and share their unique experiences, shared challenges, commonalities, and also celebrate differences. Um, and so it's, you know, events like that, I think, really speak to the that outreach and community connection component, not only of Merrill Palmer, but as Wayne State as a whole. So it's it's a really um, I'm very I'm very lucky to be a, a part of it. Well, it sounds like it. And, you know, you you basically have I highlighted three things, you know, assistant professor in the Department of Psychology and then uh, also that adjunct assistant professor in MIPSI. Uh, and then the lab. And so as a teacher and mentor to many students, what strategies or resources would you recommend that students use to stay motivated and remain, you know, their their passion for psychology throughout their studies? Because here you are, undergrad, uh, going into grad school, maybe. Um, how, how do you keep them motivated and focused and, and passionate about uh, their studies? Yeah, I think part of it is finding that niche of what really excites you, what what area, maybe it's through taking your classes or you do join a research lab and you find something that really kind of ignites you and gets you excited and interested in, you know, carrying your pursuits through, whether it's just an undergrad or beyond. I think it's also finding others, whether it's classmates or mentors or faculty you know, professors who share common interests, because I think it's so much more fun um, and exciting and motivating when you find the people that share those interests with you. So, you know, in psychology, for example, some um, schools have like Psychi, which is a, you know, a society for students in psychology. Um, sometimes there are different uh, sort of clubs or groups that do think, like I'm thinking in our department, we have a group of psychology um, tutors who are sort of peer mentors. Um, so I think finding those opportunities to build community within your academic institution, maybe within your specific area of interest, uh, offers that that peer support and kind of camaraderie that that at least I find to be a really motivating part of doing what I do is getting to share it with other people. The other thing that came to my mind while you're describing that is, you know, uh, long ago or or in the past, I should say, I shouldn't say long ago, but in the past, um, it, it almost seemed like people in the academic field were doing research just to do research in the academic field, and it wasn't really applied to the real world. I'm sensing through uh, talking to my guests over and over, more and more institutions and universities want you to be able to do applied research that you can apply to the real world. So talk to me a little bit about that. And then is there are there any thoughts on how you might, um, you know, um, how you how you would believe that academic institutions might help ensure that the psychology curricula remain relevant and and provide students um, you know with that those necessary skills to do that applied research. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's certainly an increasing emphasis on on not just doing research for the sake of research and our own knowledge, but also then taking that a step further and translating it um, in ways that can be beneficial for whether it's at the individual level, like improving personal well-being or all the way up to policy changes, you know, educational changes. Um, and so I, I know, again, that's something that with Wayne State in particular really excited me about going there and something I see reflected now that I am there is, is a strong emphasis and interest in that, that translational component of research. Um, I think in, in helping students learn about that and ensure that that's really baked into our education, I think some of that is just in thinking about how we teach psychology. Um, and not only teaching kind of classic studies and findings, but then showing how has that been applied or has it been applied and teaching students skills on how to translate knowledge. So I think one thing that can happen when you spend many, many years doing um, scientific research is you get really good at communicating science to other scientists and you get worse and worse at communicating science to people who may not be as familiar with it. So I know even with my graduate students, really, I encourage not only working on things like academic papers where you publish it in an academic journal, but also thinking about how can you write for broader audiences? You know, we write newsletters to, to local high schools recapping our study findings. And the way that you do that is very different than how you might communicate um, to, you know, another, another student or faculty member in your department. So I think those are skills that we can really be encouraging students to, to learn and practice early on to ensure that um, we're keeping that, that line of communication open. So Dr. Schachter, in your opinion, what are some of the most pressing issues or research areas in the branch or area of developmental psychology? I think one big one would be really starting to better understand um, factors that contribute to health disparities among, among youth from groups with different marginalized social identities. So I'm thinking, you know, in the field, when I'm looking at research on bullying, I think there's more and more, we have a lot of evidence, for example, that um, sexual minority, gender minorities, LGBTQ youth are, are experiencing higher rates of bullying, higher rates of mental health problems, and thinking more about how can we understand Inter appropriate intervention approaches for addressing those sorts of disparities, um, both at the, the kind of more proximal level among individuals, but also thinking about how schools can support, you know, student development across diverse range of identities. Um, I think the other factor that I, I know drives a lot of my own work, but is a, a bigger theme in developmental psychology uh, more generally, is we, we know a lot more now than we used to about kind of how things change over time in general for people. So how, you know, we can look at depression tends to increase in adolescence or anxiety tends to increase or this, and, but now it's really getting a better sense of that's not true for everyone and what predicts those different changes or why one kid, you know, gets bullied and is totally fine and another gets bullied and shows severe mental health issues. So really trying to tease apart now, okay, this is what the trends are in general, but what can we, what can explain sort of why there's so much variability as well? You know, you described a lot of different roles. Uh, you have multiple jobs, wear multiple hats. What do you love most about your job? 
I love that my job is essentially to think and come up with new ideas. Um, I love that I'm able to, on a day-to-day -day basis, ask questions that interest me and then go out and try to actually answer them. And that that's, you know, such a, a central part of my work. And then the other part that I love is that I get to share an an area, uh, you know, a, a discipline that I love with students mm -hmm. um, and that I get, I teach introductory psychology at Wayne State. So I sometimes am the first exposure students are getting to this field. And that's so exciting to me that I get to show them what I care so much about um, and sort of watch them sometimes love it, sometimes hate it, but either way, watch them get that, that exposure. Well, I did do a little research on uh, what students think of you as well, and you're getting five out of five uh, on ratemyprofessors.com. And so a lot of good uh, feedback there. And I did see your uh, intro to psych and developmental psychology as well. And so kind of tell us what a typical day looks like for you as an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at Wayne State University. I guess one of the things I love about my job is that I feel like there's never a typical day, but I think uh, some of the main activities on, on you know, any given week that I'll be doing is um, during the academic year, I spend some of some of a day, you know, working on teaching related preparation. So I'm actually um, teaching my classes primarily online right now. Um, and so I'll be working on things like getting all my lecture slides uploaded. I record videos each week to introduce the students to material. So I'll spend some time on that, responding to student emails, things like that. So that's sort of the teaching bucket. Mm -hmm. uh, I spend a lot of time meeting with uh, my own graduate and undergraduate students as well, talking about their ongoing research projects, studies that are going on in the lab. Um, and then I spend time working on my own research. Some days that means I'm opening up a statistical software and running analyses. Some days it means I'm writing up a paper where I have to review past uh, past literature and write up my own findings. Um, and some days it's reading other people's work. So one part of my job is doing peer review. I People submit their papers to journals. I read them as an anonymous reviewer and provide feedback. So that's also kind of in a typical week, something I, I spend time on. Well, it sounds like it's a good variety, keeps you busy, and it, it's not the same old everyday situation. So uh, I remember when I was teaching, it was the same thing. You know, you it depends on where you were and if you're prepping for class, if you're doing research, if you're doing reading for your research. Um, so near the end of most of our um, podcasts, we ask some fun questions to our guests. So uh, the first one I usually ask and start off with is, tell us something unique about yourself. Something unique about me, it's it may be bordering on embarrassing, but I am a diehard fan of the show Survivor. I absolutely love it. I've watched every single season. I've been in fantasy leagues where you choose your players that you think are going to win and track them throughout the season. So that is that is my uh, guilty, interesting fact. I absolutely love it. Well, that's fun. 44 seasons strong. <laughs> <laughs> what is your favorite term? principle or theory and why? My favorite uh, principle within developmental psychology, I actually kind of hinted at it before, but I didn't use the term. It's referred to as multifinality. It's the idea that people can go through the same experience, but show many different outcomes. Um, and that's really 
always fascinated me and driven a lot of the research I do, understanding how can how can people go through the same thing but experience it and show very different effects. Interesting. Uh, what's what's one of the most important things that you've learned in life? It can be inside of academic or outside of academic, anything. One of the most important things you've learned in your life so far? I think to trust your gut. I mm. think overthinking, as someone who overthinks a lot uh, and then looks back and said, I knew I had a certain feeling about that. I think trusting your gut and remembering that, like I said before, even mistakes oftentimes end up taking you down a road that you never knew you you would and and may not regret. <laughs> Very good. Do you have any other advice for those interested in the field of psychology? I think talk to as many people as you can, especially, you know, if you're if you're in undergrad and you have the opportunity to talk to your professors, talk to your classmates. Um, different people have different advice and different experiences. That's what's so great about a podcast like this is I'm sure you're getting um, both some overlap in themes, but also really unique um, journeys that people have been on. Um, and so I think I think the more people you talk to and and hear their own stories, that's that's a really powerful way of of, of determining your own. We talked about your recent trip earlier, but I'm going to ask this. So if you had the time and money to complete one project or go on one trip, what would you do? Oh, uh, my husband and I years ago hiked part of the Camino de Santiago trail in Spain, and I want to go and do the entire thing if I had the, if I had the time and, and childcare for that long. How long would it take you if you did do that? Uh, weeks. <laughs> okay. All right. I know that uh, I'm going to share the screen one last time here, and I'll uh, share all of your social media websites as well. But I found this one uh, irresistible. <laughs> I had to share this. Uh, I know that you mentioned that you had to bring a one and a half year old on a recent trip. So there is a perfect picture of um, I, I didn't catch the name. Maddie, that is Maddie. <laughs> Maddie, there you go. So there's Maddie. And then I will also share uh, your Twitter and then your LinkedIn uh, um, social media websites as well. So uh, I wanted to uh, say thank you once more. Is there anything else that you'd like to bring up or discuss on this podcast? I think we hit everything. And I apologize if you hear leaf blowing outside at the end here. <laughs> no problem. No problem. Again, Hannah, thanks again for sharing your story and your advice with us. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Masters in Psychology podcast. If you want to learn more about our guest or listen to other podcasts, you can visit our website, mastersinpsychology.com where you can search through all of the schools in the United States that offer advanced degrees in psychology. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like, follow, or share.